Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, March 8th, the Hope for Hicks edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. Happy International Women's Day. <laughs> Thank you. You're I am welcome. an international woman. That's how I think of myself. <laughs> a, fa- a femme du monde. Is oh, that how hey. we say it? Yeah. Femme du monde. No. Femme du monde. Thank you. And Noreen Malone. Hi, Noreen of New York Magazine. Hello. I'm a domestic woman <laughs> myself. <laughs> You're just like a local gal. Yeah, just a local woman. (laughs) So listeners, we heard from a lot of you about the pain of endometriosis after our discussion about Lena Dunham and her particular procedure. Uh, Thank you for sharing. We appreciate it. We we do our best with sensitive medical topics that none of us have particular experience with, um, but it is always dicey to talk about. So thanks for gently schooling us on these matters. Uh, Okay, let's jump into our show. Uh, Our topics today how to raise boys. There is an idea out there that our boys are ailing and failing and suddenly lots of theories about what we should do about it. So we discuss. Second is Hope Hicks, the Trump communication director who has recently left the White House. We discuss the enigma that is H.H. Hope Hicks. And finally, This American Life gives us a very different kind of Me Too story this week. So we talk about that. And then in our Slate Plus segment, Noreen You want to tell us what we're talking about? Sure. We are talking about whether it is sexist for people to think that Melania Trump should not have gotten the so-called genius visa for her work as a model. June, you came in on a model genius visa, right? I did. I did. Because, I, you know, I am a a model of extraordinary ability, but then I won the lottery. So, you know, (laughs) I I was a two for. (laughs) Yes. You were on the cover of what would you have been on the cover and like cover of in your activist uh, days? Well, I was on the cover of Off Our Back, so maybe that's it. You were there. You go. Well, that's that's I was, what I had in mind. I was Good. one of the editors, so yeah, I put myself on the cover one time. Cool. <laughs> Is that on eBay? Can I buy that on eBay? <laughs> I don't know that I have a copy. Weirdly enough, is anyone googling right now? June <laughs> Thomas Off Our Backs. I was wearing a really cool jacket, also, but that's another thing. Always, another. always. All right. Well, forget about the women. It's time to talk about the boys and how to raise those boys. Wow, so many articles in the last few weeks uh, putting out the putting out this idea that boys are in trouble. It's not a new idea. It's been around for like 15, 20, 20 years. I remember the first article I read about boys being in trouble in school. But between the school shootings and Me Too, it feels like this is a moment in the culture where people really feel a hunger to reckon with the fact <clears throat> that boys are angry, uh, that they can't express their feelings. I shouldn't say all boys, that some that, that we see in in some number of boys, a kind of anger, uh, inability to express feelings, falling behindness in society, uh, which I wrote about in my book. And there's even a poll that came out this week suggesting we have crossed that fateful line where there is data showing that American couples want daughters and not sons. So 
let's start with the diagnosis, which which I I can't. It seems a little simplistic to me. I'll just put that out there. But this men can't express their feelings. Noreen, there was a New York Magazine article which I thought started with a really great scene about hunting. Can you talk about that and sort of what the what what the people what what people are saying about boys and masculinity? sort of as father transfers to son. Like what that scene, can you just describe the scene and sort of what it was intended to convey? Sure. New York Magazine did a package on how to raise a boy with a bunch of essays from contributors and a lot of um, discussions with kids themselves. Um, The article you're talking about is by Will Leach, who is one of our sports writers, and he grew up in, I think, Illinois. And his father, um, when he was pretty young, took him out and tried to teach him how to shoot a gun. And Will kind of didn't want to do it. And it turned out his father didn't really want to do it. He just sort of felt like he had to pass on some kind of like manly virtue to his son. And the way that it was best expressed was through the ability to shoot a gun. And obviously that has a lot of resonance in this particular moment, given, um, you know, the school shooting in Parkland. Um, But I think that that scene sort of gets at the idea that like, Okay, how how do you express masculinity? How do you if there are things you want to teach your kid about being a good man, like what are what are the ways you do that? Like football is kind of, you know, problematic. Um, you know, hunting is problematic. Um, you know, talking about women is problematic. Like uh And these are, you know, to my mind, not exactly the best versions of masculinity, but they are sort of the clearest versions of masculinity. Yeah, I love that scene because, um, I don't know, it was very poignant. It was like, it was such a strong sense that people were going through emotions. Like, you felt like like people couldn't, like, you know, no, the Marlboro Man, the old Marlboro Man commercials, like it would be hard to air those now because that sense of kind of earnest, serious masculinity that we basically had going until the 80s, you know, maybe the mm-hmm. early 90s. I mean, for a long, long time, it's like impossible to enact for a certain set of men. It just feels like like the performative nature of it is so in the air that it's hard to even go through with the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I thought I, for that reason, I thought it was it was really poignant and especially pointed that his dad didn't want to do it either. Mm-hmm. You know, like his dad felt like, oh, I'm just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Um, June, do you think that like do you think that represents a lot of people, a small number of people, um, you know, are we just, is this just sort of a diluted East Coast thing? I mean, he wasn't an East Coaster. Right. This was taking place, I forgot where. I can't remember if it was the Midwest. I think it's Midwest, yeah. I have a feeling that, that, that there are different versions of that playing out all over the country, perhaps all over the world. Because as you say, in this particular sense, it, in this particular case, it was my bookish son, I worry about him. Let me ask my guy friends, what I can do to, you know, just give him that sense of being more of a man. And for whatever reason, like, and there was this sense in the piece that it was, it was like an inchoate yearning. You just kind of wanted to do the best for the kid. And you just weren't sure. You had a feeling that this bookishness and sitting, sitting indoors wasn't going to do it, but he didn't know what he should do. So it's like this feeling of, I have a sense that what I am doing to prepare my son for the world and for manhood isn't cutting it, but I'm not really sure what it is that I should do. And I think, I mean, you're a parent, Hannah. I mean, I think a lot of people have that sense of like, am I doing it right? What is there one specific thing that I could do that would turn a switch and make it all 
make sense, that I would I could be reassured that I was doing the right thing. And yeah, in this case, guns is a particularly tricky thing. And it, and because it is so, you know, they're so dramatic, they're so American. But I have a feeling that a lot of people are looking for the secret um, because it is clear that there is a problem with boys, that it's not necessarily your boy, it's not necessarily that boy sitting over there on the subway. But yeah, I mean, crime, you know, large scale crimes, of all uh, crimes and misdemeanors and 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 harassments of various kinds, they're done by boys for the most part, and there is something wrong. Uh, so it's like, yeah, we're, we're everybody's struggling to find a way to fix it. But what's interesting to me about what Will's father was trying to do is he was trying to unleash some kind of aggression in Will, right? Yeah. And so that I think is kind of at the heart of um, what we're talking about here is like. There is value in aggressiveness in our culture, right? We spend so much time trying to get girls to be more aggressive, talking about people being more aggressive in the workplace or assertive, maybe mm-hmm. if that's a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and but with boys, the problem is to like, how do you bring that out in a healthy way? I think mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, people who have kids talk about this is innate. My little boys fight. My little boys, you know, do it this way. So how do you harness it if it's there? You know. And you're worried about it, like there's too much. And how do you bring it out in a healthy way if it's not there? Like, should you be pushing your son to do it like Will's father was? Well, what always strikes me in those situations is the limited range of options. Uh So the the remarkable thing about women in the public sphere over the last even 100 years, like a long period of time, is how many different roles they've added on to the acceptable roles. You know, so in the Betty Friedan feminine mystique moment, it's like it's this frustration that there are so there's so few roles available to women. And this has gone up and down over the course of the centuries. So but that was like one particular moment when it felt like, okay, I can only be this or that. And it's really suffocating. Um, And with men, it always feels like this essay about a gun could have been written 50 years ago. Like there's so there's there's just like limited creativity on the I can be this or that. It feels like you just like you're shuffling around sort of four different options and kind of wondering about those four different options of manliness. But the options just don't they expand so slowly. Like with women, they expand so quickly, you know, in terms of like, can I wear pants? Can I can I work and have children? Like, can I, you know, do scatological humor? Can I run for president? It's like just boom, 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 boom. There's this kind of sense, even with all the limitations and sexual harassment, there is a sense of like a constant churn. Whereas with men, it's the sense like we're just chewing over the same like gun, anger, feelings for a century, you know? Yeah. I mean, the other thing I've been thinking about with this, um, you know, we talked so much in recent years about like the myths that little girls get fed, you know, the Cinderella myth in particular, the princess thing. Peggy Orenstein has written a lot um, very smartly about that. And we haven't done as much thinking about the myths that boys are fed. Um, And that like I... You know, you go to the movies and all you can see are superhero movies, right? And, like, I don't want to sound like Tipper Gore about video <laughs> games or whatever, but, like, those feed you a certain kind of myth. And I and I think that the moment is ripe for that kind of thinking through of what what are actually the messages that boys are getting, not just in school, not just from their dads, but, like, literally how is, how is um, maleness and... and heroicness? How is that conceived all around them? Yeah. I mean, because there are these virtues that sound very old-fashioned and are very old-fashioned that I see 
the benefit of for both men and women. But like what? Well, you know, really corny things like honor and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, sacrifice to a certain extent. And you know, I, I can't even think they're because they are so old fashioned. It's almost embarrassing to to you know dredge them up. And I do think there there are good things for everyone to you know like kind of the old fashioned Boy Scouts kind of things that are. But why are those for men? Like no, why do no, we no. think I those think they're for men and women. But the problem with men is that I mean, and I should say that I have very little contact with men, and and always have like <laughs> you know I was an only child, uh, you know, so it was only my my dad in our household. I've you know just never had much connection with men. Um, but like my partner has nine brothers uh, for whom she was the second mother because she's the oldest. And, you know, so I know them I, you like but I, I don't have a lot of um, actual lived experience with, you know, close, close relationships with men. Um, so, no, I think that those things appeal to me personally. And I do think they're for everyone. However, the problems that we have seem to be around men that like we know that we need to have conversations about, for example, just to, you know, pick an example from our current moment about consent. Well, you, the first conversation you have with someone can't be about consent. Like you have to have a whole spirit of long conversations about actually, you know, sharing feelings about talking about, you know, how you are going to be in the world. And so you end up talking about these, you know, timeless virtues that are actually very hard to talk about and really kind of need to be modeled maybe i just don't know yeah it's a weird thing where we end up like instead of it seems to me a lot of people instead of trying to like sort of build up character to use another old-fashioned word Mm -hmm. in their kids they try to build up gender roles and or to take apart gender roles but but people are more um focused on sort of the external manifestations of that stuff than the actual root of behavior. Yeah, see, that's why I don't like this conversation about men have to express their feelings. Like, this whole way of saying, like, men should be more like women, I think it just weirdly enforces the dichotomy. I don't, I think Mm -hmm. men have a lot of feelings. I think anyone who knows a man, like, men have tons of feelings. There's sort of a weird, you know, if anything, there's kind of a social umbrella over, like, how it's acceptable to be and what you get penalized for, but that's kind of society's problem. It's not like men don't have feelings, you know? There is just a, there's just a kind of, I don't know, sometimes I think it's more about power. Like, it's just about having been in power more than it is about gender. Like, can I, can I run, like, a really, do you guys have patience for, like, like five-second anthropological theory that I'm Absolutely. really into Absolutely. Yes, because I I'm a woman it. and I have endless <laughs> patience. Okay, it is not Yuval Harari theory. So this theory is about how human beings got civilized. It's a new theory. And essentially what it says is, you know, the big question in anthropology is like, how do we go from being chimps to be, you know, chimps are just like sociopaths the way biologists describe them. They're completely selfish and narcissistic and all about like, you know, there's a funny, the feminist Sarah Hardy has this funny scene like chimps on an airplane. Like if we had all stayed chimps, we would we would never be able to get on an airplane. We just like rip each other limbs apart just so we could get to the front of the airplane. That's the idea about chimps. So how did we go from being chimps to being who we are today, like civilized and then bizarrely altruistic as a species? And one theory, it's kind of it's so interesting because it's a theory about the patriarchy. It's a theory essentially that like groups of less alpha males kind of got together to sort of shut down the sociopathic alpha male. And that's how the patriarchy got created. And so there's just been like 
tens of thousands of years of kind of patriarchy, effectively, like groups of men in power. And so how I bring that around, it's like, I think the power and the entitlement to power more than anything essential about being male or being female is part of the problem. Like men have been in power for a really long time, and that has habituated them to a certain way of being, which might be just as true if like we had been bonobos and women had been in power. Like it's not being a man. It's just like, you know, it's just it's just being in power. So like consent issues are problems of entitlement and power, not problems of like, well, men don't have feelings and, you know, men essentially don't understand other people or whatever. It's just like men are stronger and they are in power. And so they have to they have to learn about that. It has to equalize or something. Yeah. I mean, Did that I convince seems you. Yeah, no, that seems absolutely right to me. I mean, all of you know, even when we started this conversation, you were talking about, you know, big changes for women. That's because women have been held back. That's and because of power and it's the patriarchy. And it, in a sense, it doesn't matter why, but it is all about change that's, you know, overdue. Um, and yeah, there's I, I also dismiss gender essentialism. Can I say one thing about raising boys just as a parent? I know I'm over talking, but like the raising boys problem Part of me thinks that, like, we have made a lot of forward movement on the emotions front, like basically parents raising their children. We are boys are allowed to cry. I mean, not in every segment of America and in every family, but in general, I'm thinking boys are do have a wider range of expressing their emotions. But what I think has has operated really counter to that is that um kids don't talk. There's not as much conversation as there used to be for a hundred different reasons, like phones mostly. Like there's not a lot as much face-to-face conversation because boys have reasons to want to get to know girls and talk to girls and vice versa because, you know, because they like they want to get with each other. So there's like a desperate need on both sides to kind of understand each other. But people talk a lot less, um, less conversation, just a lot more distraction, a lot more time spent together. So I think that's like the countervailing force operating to the opening of emotions with both boys and girls. Like this guy, Moises Velasquez Manoff, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, I thought wrote a great op-ed about what we should do with boys and consent. That was one of the most interesting. But he did mention that one of his friends has his son read YA novels. Because YA novels are like a kind of performative conversation. It's almost like an old-fashioned world between boys and girls where they interact and talk to each other and stuff like that. So so it's like making a kind of like language of processing and conversation more normed for boys. But how do you reckon with these big social forces that we're all sort of staring down, right? It's like it is the school shooting stuff, but it's also, you know – boys are less likely to go to college or just are all these signs that boys are in crisis. So Mm. how, you know, how do you reconcile that with sort of the sunnier view that boys are learning to talk more now and that it's all getting adjusted? Well, I think this is like what I read about in my book. I think for a certain class of boys, that anger thing. I mean, one thing that amazed me about the school shooter in Parkland, I don't know if any of you heard the 911 call. The 911 call was amazing to me because he called 911 when he'd had a fight with the person he was living with. And and he was desperate. And what he said on the 911 call was, like, my mother's just died. I'm desperate. Um, and and I think that, that that he should have been in therapy or he should have been calling a suicide hotline. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it felt to me like he had one option, which was, like, guns, police. Like, if a man has trouble, he calls 911. That's, like, the manly way to deal with that 
crisis moment. So that I feel like is is what everybody's saying, the completely stereotypical, like there are segments of the country or places where where boys are taught that they 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 have to be admired and and like they have to, you know, they have to be strong. And, and, and so that is that I feel is just like a basic education on on what a boy can be, you know, and I again, like I write about this in my book, like you, you know, this idea that 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 men in places where there are no other jobs feel like they can only do kind of what we consider to be manly jobs. So either yeah. we have to change our ideas around technical education. I mean, we, we've talked about this or or boys can be nurses and that shouldn't be a big deal. I would just push back a little bit against the idea that it is only, you know, certain areas of the country where boys feel entitled in this way. I think the expression of entitlement is different in different socioeconomic classes. But I think you see that um, cropping up in all kinds of different ways. Like what? Like what's the Brooklyn variety of of like I have to be a man? I don't think it's so much have to be a man, but I think it is like a sense of entitlement that men do carry with them. And I think that can be actually great for men. Like, I think more women should have a sense of entitlement about their place in the world. But I just don't think that, like, that has necessarily disappeared. What do you mean by a sense of entitlement? You know, that I can walk into this room and take charge of it, that I can, you know, take this job, that I can. I I think, like, actually, the. I mean, the this is sort of an obvious point, but like. The trouble with the the sort of less economically viable places that you're talking about is that there's a there's a bumping up of that sense of entitlement with like economic reality, whereas in um, you know places where the economy is still humming, actually that entitlement, that sense of like I will walk into this room and things will be great, is actually rewarded. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I think really what the sense of entitlement in places where men aren't working has been replaced with is not a reckoning with the sense of entitlement, but a sense of victimhood. Like one thing that mm-hmm. it amazes me in the last few years is how kind of the, the the manosphere and men's rights and just the kind of mainstream men's rights has adopted the language of victimhood so completely rather than kind of reckoning with the roles has just gone from kind of one end of the seesaw to the other, you yeah. know, yeah. which doesn't seem great. Hey, Verilyn, jumping in really quickly before we wrap up to add race into this mix, because I think, you know, just thinking about the dynamics we've sort of set up is really predicated on economic status. But I think regardless of economic status, black boys hardly ever get to just be boys. Yeah, race is a whole... It's like... the. I feel like the black conversation around being a boy, that's true, is totally different. Like when you read essays or see things about how to raise a black boy, um, you get even more of a sense of being constrained because it's like, you know, if you show too much like boyness, testosterone, you're in big trouble for one reason. But if you show too little, you're kind of in trouble for a whole different reason and violating a set of cultural norms. So it's like I feel like like the race issues are even more complicated. All right. Well, listeners, if you have great tips on how to raise boys, I would love to hear them and we would love to share them with the rest of our listeners. But just ideas you've had about specific things that you can do to, say, teach boys to operate or be in a slightly different way, Um, not just like you can cry, but more than that. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Our next topic is Hope Hicks. Uh, one of the many White House staffers to leave the White House in the last few weeks. She was there from the beginning of the campaign. She came in as a friend of Ivanka's, or at least somebody who worked for Ivanka. She was a total political newbie who ended up with a huge role in the Trump White House. And her role, or at least what we kind of think her role was, was to tame the beast. That was basically her job. And then in the last couple of weeks, she was in the spotlight in these kind of uncomfortable ways twice. And so she announced her resignation. All right. So were you guys surprised that Hope Hicks left? Did you feel, well, why don't we just lay out, I don't know, we, we talked about this the other week when we talked about domestic violence in the White House, but just to say the couple of things that, that happened leading up to Hope Hicks's resignation. Noreen, do you want to do that? Sure. The big precipitating incident, it seemed like, was that Hope Hicks was called before the Congressional Committee. The House uh, Intelligence the, Committee. The House Intelligence Committee to um, to testify. And she it was leaked to the press that she had said, oh, I told some white lies on behalf of the president, which is obviously not a great news cycle for all involved, even though like you know, that's kind of probably the job of every communications director in Washington is to tell some white lies. Um, But so then she, in short order, resigned. It seemed as if she had probably cut some kind of a deal. She probably knows more than almost anyone. Um, And there were these kind of amazing photographs of her walking out of out of um, out of the room after testifying with this grin on her face that was like the cat that ate the canary. She just like she she couldn't sort of contain her delight or maybe she was doing a forced smile for the cameras. Who knows? Um, but then so then she resigns and there is a flurry of news coverage um, with sources close to Hicks telling just about every reporter who sourced up in the White House that she'd been thinking about it for a while and, you know, she had been, uh, you know, she'd, she'd lost her closest confidants in the White House and uh, they said, you know, little to nothing to do with the most recent stuff. Yeah. So I think that my, like, the, the, the problem with Hope Hicks is almost like the problem with First Ladies. It's the, the worlds and, and layers of meaning that we construct around Hope Hicks that keep us thinking and talking about Hope Hicks, at least me, myself. I thought she was really unusual because she was fairly quiet. Mm-hmm. Like, like, people talked about her as a kind of low-level celebrity figure, mostly because she's beautiful and a former model. And so anytime you'd catch a glimpse of her, you know, she would look look model-like, you know, like with Melania-style hair. She was sort of one of the beautiful people. But it was also this taming the beast problem that um, that I could never tell if it, it if it infuriated me or you were glad that it was there. It's a little bit like Ivanka Trump, but without the nepotism, the sense that it was Hope Hicks's job to be the office wife. Um, and it's always said the same way. It's like she would try and encourage him not to do such crazy tweets, you know. She would try and calm him down. And, um, and, it, and whenever I read read things like that simultaneously my blood boils that we maintain so prominently this role of the wife that it's always the woman's job to 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 tame the beast like that and also you're like oh thank god you know what did, did you guys have any hope picks fantasies like that yeah i mean I, it's so easy to pin your fantasies on her in the white house because like if you were casting the movie or whatever <laughs> the mysterious beautiful woman at the heart of it is who you 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 know would center the narrative around i guess i 
suppose I think some of the coverage of her has been sexist. I suppose my thinking about her <laughs> has been sexist um, because it, it is so like visually driven. But it's like not nothing. As you said, like, thank God, it's not nothing in the in the Trump White House for someone to have that ability to calm the president. That is actually like it's insane to say it, but like sort of the management of his moods is like vital to national security. Right. And so, you know, using whatever skill set she has, like whether it's like calm traditional feminine values, is that, you know, should we not root for that? If if she were a man doing the same thing, would we talk about it differently? Almost certainly, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, the New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino had the tweet that was quoted in a lot of stories where she said goodbye to Hope Hicks, an object lesson in the quickest way a woman can advance under misogyny, silence, beauty, and unconditional deference to men. Now, that's a very cutting way. <laughs> that's that's sort of essentially what we just said, but without the gratitude. Uh, did you think that was that was that was Fair? Is that what we were all thinking anyway, but didn't want to say? Or or is that just, um, I don't know. What, what did you guys think of that? I mean, yeah, it seems clearly true. And I, I mean, and it's, I too, I'm uncomfortable with this constant reference to her beauty, to the fact that she's a former model. I mean, even Maggie Haberman had that in like the second sentence or something of her piece about her departure. And yet... But if it you look clear, around Washington, no, exactly. it stands out. Oh, absolutely. I, I was going to say, and yet it's clearly totally, totally relevant. And it's totally relevant to a president who only has, you know, only sees women two ways, fuckable or not fuckable. And, you know, he really responds to a very narrow version of attractive women. And she falls into that. Uh, and, you know, and also this talk of former model, it also is kind of relevant because she doesn't have a lot of job experience. I mean, she's 29. She, you know, was, yes, yeah, she was a PR woman after she graduated from SMU. And, you know, PR is in her blood, her father, her grandfather, big PR guys. But she, doesn't, she just didn't have that, you know, notable a career until she found herself among the Trumps. And so... You know, even though, yes, she has a little bit of experience in PR, like she's totally out of her depth. And just in terms of like who would typically be in that kind of job at the White House, they would have a very different set of experience. At the same time, it's the Trump White House and nobody with experience or very few people with experience want to go anywhere near it. So it's tricky, right? Well, I want to push back a little bit against Gia's tweet, mm. which actually in the moment that I read it and for a while afterwards, I was like, that, that crystallizes so much. She said she said something that I was unable to express, but like, you know, so smart. But, but you know, the people who actually report on the White House, I think, see Hicks differently, right? So if you are just looking at Hicks as... Um, you know, as I just talked about her as almost a character in this play that's evolving outside of us. Yes, she is the beautiful, silent person advancing under misogyny. If you're actually in the White House, she wields a lot of power and she, you know, she does it in skilled ways, actually. And and we are not paying attention to that because yeah. we are not there. And, and like, as people have pointed out, like the job of a PR professional is actually to get out of the way. And she was great at that. So, yeah. Political communication, maybe not her forte, but like she she wasn't just, you know, she was silent in public, but we don't actually know what her role was behind the scenes. Like, I think that's also part of the danger of the slack that I think we are inclined to cut her, that she's just this like helpless 
thing who made a bad decision, you know, in attaching herself to Trump, but she was loyal and she kept going along with it. But actually, she made like a really considered decision. She stayed on his campaign longer than anyone. She has watched him do a number of sort of really incredibly horrible things from day one. She's watched him race bait in like just about every way you can imagine. And she's been there smiling the whole time. And for us to just sort of see her as this like silent, you know, smiling, you know, sympathetic figure is um, is unfair. Man, you just ruined like the way my fantasy ends, which is in a like nine to five Thelma and Louise way where like she's just like, fuck this. I can't stand this anymore. And she like kicks over the chairs. That probably didn't happen in any way. I'm sure it's just what you said. Like she's actually quiet, insanely competent for a 29 year old and um, nothing like the other women in the Trump orbit who are kind of loud, performatively pro-Trump. You know, like the Huckabee Sand, like the mode of most women in the Trump orbit, you always feel like they're putting on a performance the way sometimes you feel with conservative women. Like, I'm just going to say this because I'm going to be badass enough to say this. You know, Um, probably she was like. But I I just I just want to point out, just remind people about that GQ piece that Olivia, is it Nutsi? did in 2016, where she, you know, it was during the campaign, she wanted to write a profile of Hicks. She, you know, contacted her and Hicks didn't want to talk, but she said that Trump would talk to her about, would talk to Nutsi about Hicks. And so... In front of her. hmm? They all sat together. It was really weird. Exactly. And like, that is like... Again, she's clearly a Trump whisperer. It's like she clearly has one his trust. She clearly... in that sense, very good at her job. But that was also weird. Well, it's very controlled and very controlling. And everything you see about her background, like, like you know, we, we don't have that much on her other than like she was the captain of the high school lacrosse team. I know that personality type a little bit. That's that's not someone who's just flibberty gibbeting about. She's like she's kind of running the thing. She's seeing the field. I think that Hope Hicks will have a more promising post White House career than a lot of people in the administration. Yeah, because as soon as it got difficult, she sort of exited. So I'm sure that she will. Like as soon as she was in the spotlight, she ducked either because she's uncomfortable and doesn't like the spotlight or because she's trying to do some self-preservation, which is completely understandable. Okay. Well, we will look forward to part two of the of the Hicks story. She she kind of teeny beeny little hinted that she might take a book advance if it was mm-hmm. big enough. So maybe we'll learn something amazing <laughs> from Hope Hicks, or maybe she'll just show up as like a sports coach somewhere. All right, <laughs> a lacrosse coach, but one who doesn't harass people. All right, our next topic. Uh, this this American Life's Hannah Jaffe Walt did a different kind of Me Too story, which came out last week. The story is about Don Hazen, a lefty media mogul who is the editor of Alternate. He was accused by five women of sexual harassment. And the thing that's different about this story is that Hannah Jaffe Wall talks at length to the five women who accused him, as well as to Don Hazen's longtime life partner about their feelings about this. She does not manage to talk to him, or although she does have some comments from him. But I think what emerges is, to me, a very different texture of piece about 
sexual harassment, which really focuses on the experiences of women, why they responded the way that they responded, their histories, um, and, 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 and what it was about their histories that, that allowed them to respond to this man in this particular way. And also a portrait of a sexual harasser, not in his own words, but in, in the kind of more fuller picture of, uh, of, of, uh, I don't know, of a sort of novelistic portrait. So what what did you guys, which of the women stuck out to you or which of the, the series of examples was most poignant or, or kind of evocative for you in this story? I mean, I guess uh, if I have to pick just one. Wait, June, it just occurred to me that listeners, if you haven't heard this story, I hope that you've listened to it. It's it's uh, great and fascinating. Uh, in our conversation, we are probably going to talk more fully about it and treat it more like a news report than a bit of entertainment, even though it's somewhere in the middle of those two things. So I encourage you to listen to the episode and maybe then come back and listen to what we're going to say if you do not want us to reveal certain details about what happens. Okay. June, I ask you the question again, which of the women moved you the most or stuck with you the most? Um, I guess if I'm just pulling out one, it would be Vivian, his partner, um, Don Hazen's partner, uh, partly because um, she is present at the beginning and the end. It's prob- she probably has one of those shorter uh, segments in terms of how much how much we hear her voice. But it's really striking that she she says many things that the other women say, both about her own life and her own experience, and then about Don. That she knew that he was, I think she calls him a flirt. She knew that he, you know, talked to women in a certain tone. She had a feeling um, that he might get into some kind of trouble uh, because of sexual harassment. And I think just the fact that we hear her first and it just kind of sets off this tone that this is going to be a more complicated story. This is a kind of the kind of nuanced story that is actually very difficult to represent um, journalistically, although it is, I think, the goal. Uh, I not think I know it is the goal, um, but that, you know, she's not hiding the full complexity of her feelings. She's not simplifying this to make something look better or to, you know, make the make things just easier to grok. She's admitting to the complexity of it. And so at the beginning, you know, this is her guy. They've been together for more than 20 years, but she knows that he's a flirt and she's seen him have interactions with women that she finds problematic. And then at the end, uh, we learn that uh, despite having heard all of, you know, when the story comes out, BuzzFeed broke the story that this this American Life piece uh, is is kind of chronicling in a slightly different way. Um, she She's upset. But then when he tells her that he has had affairs, because they, it wasn't all just sexual harassment. He did also have, you know, consensual sexual relationships uh, with women. That's what truly upsets her. And yet... She also says that she thinks their relationship will endure. And so there's a certain shockingness to that of one of the things that comes up throughout the story is about complicity and, and, and uh, you know, have I, have I, what kind of signals have I sent? Have I gotten into an unspoken situation? And then to kind of learn that, you know, how the story, how the story between Vivian Don and Don is going to play out, I think is both shocking and yet also not necessarily surprising. One thing that was striking to me in the whole thing was the way it shows the ecosystem of an office, right? Um, that that these cases don't exist in isolation, that they that 
that the women are talking to each other and reinforcing ideas about how things should go down. Um, the the two sort of younger women in particular struck me. So Tana, um, I kept thinking about, she came in and literally from her job interview, she really wanted this job. She was sort of stuck in a dead end career, non-career, and really, really wanted this. Her friend said, oh, you know, I can hook you up this guy he'll probably like sexually harass you and so she goes in like expecting that he does she sort of puts up with it and like from the word go is sort of like well this is part of the cost of doing business here he makes her the sex editor which gives him sort of like a cover to you know talk about sex with her and there is like a point where it goes too far even for her which is sort of when he shows her a quote-unquote artistic photograph of his penis from the 70s um But she still kind of goes along with it. And then this slightly younger woman comes along who he, you know, does some version of recruits slash picks up at a protest, as he's done with other women before. And this woman um, doesn't want to put up with the sexual harassment. And so the ripples that that sets off, the things that the women say to each other, that was where it was interesting to me. The sort of like um, the way women – talk to each other and don't in these situations. Right. I mean, that is that is a really good point. I love the way the sisterhood kind of comes together but doesn't come together quite completely. And to me, that was okay because the thing that was different about this, this take on Me Too is the diversity of responses, that there were many different ways to respond to a situation, be a woman in this situation. So Tana, the woman you're describing, also has a counterpart in in this woman who who um, it's one of my favorite points in the episode when when this this woman is describing how she had a group of young male friends and and they they would talk about the hypnotizer when she was in high school. Do you guys remember that mm-hmm. one? Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And they real and then she realized that this was when she was much younger that the hypnotizer was her. They were essentially talking about her and her body, and and then she then she has this kind of split where she realizes, okay, the hypnotizer is this kind of powerful person that's somehow associated with me and like lives out there in the world, and other people see and talk to the hypnotizer, and then there's me, and so she decides opposite from Tana to kind of shut the hypnotizer down, um, and this transform this transports to the workplace when the two of them are asking for advancement or a raise when Tana is kind of trying to figure out how to use her sexuality, like how to how to navigate perfectly this line of knowing full well that she's a sexual being to this person um, and, and kind of using it, but kind of being grossed out by it. Um, whereas the other woman decides like, no. So there was this amazing scene where she comes and asks for a raise and he and I have been in this situation myself. And this was really enlightening for me where you can see that the man wants to give you a raise in a certain way. He wants to be your savior. Mm -hmm. So he starts asking her, like, do you have trouble paying your rent? Like, he can't just give her a raise because she's worth giving a raise to her because she does her work well. He wants to be in a situation where it's like a sort of little helpless girl who needs his help. You know, and that's the role he's writing for himself. And she's like, no, you know, not doing it. And so she didn't get the raise. Uh, but I thought that, that, that the two of them in terms of like how the workplace plays out and the different responses you can have to this kind of dude was was really, really interesting. Yeah. And 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 just the idea that like having a harasser in that role even if you are not someone he targets, it does affect you in the workplace because she she didn't get the raise because she didn't play along, right? And like in a different kind of an office, it might not have played out that way. I mean, there are so many striking pieces uh, of this story. And one of them 
that really got to me is that he was giving these women a chance that, you know, which is another part of this, you know, story that we've heard in other examples that have come up in the last few months. Well, he was really good to women. He really gave women a chance. And it is true. Of course, he gave a certain kind of women a chance. Uh, but many of the a lot of the time they were, you know, one of the women was like working in Whole Foods. Uh, Whole Foods and, and, you know, somehow heard about him and was given a job or he would, you know, the, the, the final woman who kind of broke, you know, broke his streak, so to speak, and, and caused the world to split open that, you know, the little thing that he had going on was that, um, she, you know, she, they were at a protest and he saw a woman with a reporter's notebook and, you know, he goes up to her. He sort of says, hey, who are you writing for? Do you want to write for me? Like, in a certain sense, it's a dream fantasy scenario, which, of course, it is a dream fantasy scenario because he's approaching her. Not really. He doesn't know anything about her writing. He doesn't know what's going on, but he fancies her. So he gives her a chance. And yet, at the same time, they got a chance. And that is, you know, it's one of the many ways that this story feels just so much more complicated than many of the narratives that we've heard. Well, the woman he had a long time affair with was also working for him consistently. Yeah, as a consultant, she wasn't an employee, but yeah, she she he gave her money. You know, he he helped her to earn money. Yeah. So it was all tied in there for him. Like it mm-hmm. was the work, the women, the sexuality, the workplace. Like it was all part of this one big picture. The only person who was not part of that big picture was his longtime partner, exactly. who was a therapist and kind of stood outside that access. But um, but you really did get a picture of a guy for whom the mentorship, like it would be really hard to piece apart his mentorship. And he he like at one point yells, you know, I'm a feminist. Like. Mm-hmm. Like, right. you can't, you know, that was an amazing scene, too. Like, yeah. you know, that it, it his self-conception, his sense of himself as as kind of a helper to women yep. and a prayer upon women were all inextricably linked. Um, do you guys think that this was a man of a certain generation? Did it strike you that this is a kind of old-fashioned model of boss and mentorship or that it could be very much alive today? It feels to me like this is certainly less prevalent than it used to be um i i i don't i'm I'm not meaning to excuse the men of my generation i just think think that they they just don't quite think in this same way nor are they necessarily given positions automatically of power over so many women um but his psychology was was dealt with i think in a really interesting way right so so his partner talks about she's trying to think about like what was going on in his life when all this was happening. And she, you know, I mean, she is trying to sort of excuse him, but it is like it deepens the picture that, you know, he he like had all this stuff happening with his family. His parents were dying. You know, he was grappling with his own mortality. And then you hear the women as they were thinking about why they went along with it, what their sort of justification was. They were talking about like, here's this old man who just wants me to see him as sexual. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he like probably doesn't get a lot of that. So so you do sort of see the way that his age, and right. his own thinking about his age um, might make him might have made him behave in a way that uh, was different than he might have behaved when he was, you know, 40 or whatever. And they kind of priced that into the relationship because, mm-hmm. for example, Deanna, who he had a long term relationship with, he when they first start to have sex, he doesn't use a condom and she is appalled by that. Yes, yeah, she's on the pill, but it's a, it's not about pregnancy. It's about 
STIs, but she figures, oh, he's old. He probably hasn't been having sex in a while. He's probably like that was a decision that she made about him that she wouldn't have made about a younger man. It was about him, about how she viewed somebody of his age. And then later, of course, she finds out he has STI. He has at least one STI that he and then you know that the thing that you said, um, Noreen, about oh, hey, I'm the fe- I'm the world's biggest feminist. I'm a feminist. Comes after he essentially tries to rape her. I mean, he I'm sure would reject that word, but he has he tries to have sex against her will, and partly it's about her discovering, learning about this STI. And so, you know, it is each person's view of the other that isn't necessarily about who they are as people, but as the kind of the 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 site the the type that they represent to each other in a way yeah and the difficulty of communicating also struck me because each person had a story in their head about what was happening in the moment who this other person was what right. this other person wanted what they could get from that other person because we talk now so glibly about consent like we say like oh let's just talk about it everybody should just talk about it but this was a it's just kind of giant landscape of things that were not said mm-hmm. and things that were not expressed and assumptions that were made and kind of self delusions that were put in place place and narratives that people told to themselves. You know, it just seemed epic, epic to me, all the way down to almost the last line from his longtime partner in the scene I found most poignant when she's watching a TV show and she breaks down with him and because she's upset about the affair, she's learned all this now, the story has broken. And she says, well, did you ever hold her like that? Um, Mm -hmm. When she sees a scene of a, you know, sort of longtime partners on screen doing that. And he says, no. You know, and and she says, and I believed him. And I found that moment amazing. I had no idea what to think about that moment because, of course, he held he he was he had an affair with this woman for years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a real relationship. And yet, I think you you need to believe at some level that what you have with this person is different, and everybody needs to believe that that what they have is is sort of different and special, uh, yeah. and and makes them special, Absolutely. which is which is like beautiful and sad at the same time, right? Anyway, you should all you should all listen to it. It's called Five Women. It's from This American Life's Hannah Jaffe Walt, who's a great reporter in general. So so listen and tell us what you think. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to our recommendations. June, what do you have for us? Pues antes antes de que empiezo quiero notar otra vez que tenemos un podcast en español en Slate que se llama El Gafas en español cada jueves un panel de periodistas estupendos Leon Krause, Janet Rodriguez. Dori Toribio, Fernando Pizarro, Ariel Mutsatsos, tres de estos cinco cada semana. Um, es, pues, es muy interesante. Si hablas español, escúchalo. Si no hablas español, escúchalo por, por lo menos por cinco minutos. Every Can Thursday, I try? <laughs> Can I try? Let me try. I, I right. couldn't pick it all up, but okay. So Slate has a new podcast. It's the it's the Gabfest in Spanish, and it airs every Thursday. And it's a wonderful panel of th- three journalists. Um, yeah, if you Huh? Three out of five. There's I mentioned five, and then three of them are on the show every week. Okay, three out of five journalists. And if you speak Spanish, you should definitely tune in. And if you don't speak Spanish, then you should tune in anyway. Is that is that? Oh you know, yeah, for, for you know for about five minutes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. My other recommendation, I think I might have recommended it last year, but um, it just started up again for season two. Is the Good Fight, which is kind of the continuation of the Good Wife, that's now only on CBS All Access. Now I don't know honestly if it's worth having CBS All Access just for that show, but it really 
it was I felt so good to have it back because they do still talk about things that are feel like they're very much of this minute. And I know that other kinds of media do it, but they for me better than anyone else kind of incorporate all that dramatic tension and just like the excitement of your basic kind of legal procedural that's very well done, but also, you know, brings up things like what what would a, a black Chicago law firm do if the Obama library business was maybe going to another firm. And what happens, you know, there's, they also still have the technological storylines that were always, you know, very much part of the good wife and, and kind of their, their strength. So it's a, still a really great show. There are, you know, now they swear, which, you know, as a swearer, I still find them like, yeah, okay, you're, now you're not on television, you can swear. Mm. <laughs> but um, great acting, really good storylines, and uh, also uh, what is going to happen with that Obama library in that show. I'm super bought in. <laughs> I really want to watch that. I have a kind of embarrassingly behind-the-curves recommendations, both novel and a cookbook that everybody's already read already, but I've, like, because I've been in a hole trying to get Invisibilia out. Oh, by the way, Invisibilia launches this week, so everybody yeah, goes yeah, the first wow. episode is on Friday. You're so, you're so calm. I know it's my episode. It's um, it's kind of personal this one, but it but it wow. comes out the day after this podcast drops. So it's Friday, and then we have one a week for six weeks, minus the first and the last one. But the, a lot of them are, are really great. Um, but anyway, I've been kind of in a hole and come out of the hole. And um, so, what am I reading? Little Fires Everywhere, the Celeste Ang book, which has so been culturally digested that Reese Witherspoon is already all over the TV version of this. Um, I love this novel. I really love it. I, I picked it up just because it's been sitting around our house for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I think it's such a... You, well, I, you mean you picked it up on the recommend um, because Noreen recommended it a while ago. Well, it's, it's, oh, about, did my, you? it's about my hometown, Hannah. That's my high oh, school. Oh, I'm so that's sorry. Like, Should I skip that? No, and just, no, no, no. no, no. It's funny. Okay. Uh, that, I'm, that's delightful. I'm, I'm very excited to see my hometown like on the big or the, whatever it's going to be small screen whatever like I'm and I hope they film in Shaker it's like it's a real event in my hometown well I also was thinking um, not remembering that you had recommended it like I have a whole new view of you now because man that place I'm not sure if it comes out flattering or not flattering but it's definitely a stand-in for a kind of high-end suburb suburban you know get me out of here-ness <laughs> Not in a dystopian David Lynchy way, but like in a sort of everything is ordered way, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I ha- actually that part of the, the the book I quibble with. I I don't think that's actually well, whatever. There's a, we'll we'll take it to the Shaker Heights podcast, but I think it's actually a more <laughs> freeing place than it's portrayed as in that novel. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can discuss that. Um, I'm two chapters. I'm two chapters from done. Uh, my second totally behind the curve recommendation is that book Dining In. Did you also already recommend this? Noreen from Alison Roman. I did. did. I love that book too. Okay. I'm done then. I got nothing to say. <laughs> no, no, really no. Talk about hole, what you I like. I love this book. She's just like an Instagram favorite, but she's like really just stuff in there is really genuinely different. Um, her relationship with anchovies and preserved. <laughs> There's just a lot of stuff in there that's just like uh, turning me on because it's just different from other stuff that I've been doing and reading. So anyway, um, Noreen, uh, what what's slightly more um, like like 2018 of this moment recommendation <laughs> do you have for us? Sunset Boulevard, which I, <laughs> which I watched recently for the first time. I can confirm it is a great masterwork and it is currently streaming, I believe, on Netflix. So if you, like me, have that cultural lacuna, go check it out. It's it's um, really good. And also, like all good old movies, it's only like 90 minutes. This is my <laughs> great, like, 
hatred of going to the movies now. Everything is so long and it's so great to just watch something that's an hour and a half. Um, But my real recommendation is a New York Times article called The New Vanguard. And it's by the three book critics of um, The New York Times. And they sort of did it on the occasion of International Women's Month or Women's History Month. Um, But the premise of the article is that women are actually at the vanguard of literature right now. And um, they cite a bunch, maybe 10 to 15 different novels by women that like if you want to understand what's going on uh, in literature right now, you need to read them. And um, so I'd read about half of them and the other half I'm like now sort of adding to my reading list. Um, So, you know, it's books like Asymmetry, which is out just now, or um, the Elena Ferrante books, uh, the Rachel Cusk books, uh, a Nell Zink book, Zadie Smith Sheila Hetty, um, all of these women who are exper- – Alison Bechdel, all these women who are experimenting with the form. So um, if you, like me, are looking for a syllabus of interesting things to read, The New Vanguard. Yeah. If we were smarter, we could discuss kind of if our feelings about the domestic novel have shifted and if we are just eliminating that category or degendering that category and if they were trying for some different kind of understanding of women's fiction that will become so – enriched and embedded that there's no longer the category of women's fiction. Um, but I don't, I don't, I'm not smart enough for that topic. So, but you, what, The real story there is that I hadn't read hardly any of these books, so it's actually my fault that we're not having that discussion. No. We, All right. Well, we theoretically can have that discussion <laughs> we will in, our, in our Someday, better, yes. smarter selves. Exactly. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verlin Williams, our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Listeners, we urge you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and also to leave a review. Tell your friends about the podcast so everyone can learn about it. That's our show for today. For June and Noreen, I am Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 